Greetings, this is John Farmer, Delatore, Executive Director of the Ozarks Film Foundry with you again for Outland Filmmakers. Thank you for joining us. As you know, this is where we talk about independent filmmaking in areas that are not New York City or Los Angeles, which means we talk about indie filmmaking and most of the world, and about trends and happenings and history and all the rest that it's involved with uh, independent filmmaking. I thought this time maybe uh, we ought to talk a little bit about what is independent filmmaking. I'm here with our in-house producer, David Carr. That's me. Hey, he's also our producer and the man on the board. And so, um, you know, know, he's going to stand in for for all of you as every man out there, every woman. And uh, I may riff and bounce off of him some questions. Yeah, that's what I'm here for. Yeah, right. (laughs) And to say things like, we need to talk about news and other things before we get into the history of indie film. Well, in the news. Because that's a big part of what we do It is. Oh, absolutely. You know, the history makes today, but let's talk about today and get back to the history. So, And I'll uh, I'll say that... um, if you want to get more like just news type stuff, we do have another podcast that is just a news from the Outlands. So if you want just straight news, feel free to catch that. We try to do that every single week. Um, in this segment, we tend to dive more deeply into things. That's so. right. This is where the this podcast here is where you'll come for analysis for um, talk about movies and theory and and yeah. what's do what's interviews. happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, filmmaker interviews, that sort of thing. And then the newscast, the weekly newscast is just what's happening out here in the outlands in terms of film production. So yeah. you want to hear about upcoming productions and, and, and sort of a roll call of, of activity going on. Yeah. Cause we do focus mostly in the Midwest. I mean, we, we, do. we do talk globally, but are, we are based out of the Midwest. We're in Missouri and we, we do. tend to focus on that area. So that's right. So for new, for the newscast, there's, there's international national news and plus the local news and, and then all those threads are connected. And then with this filmmaker interview podcast mm-hmm. here, Outland Filmmakers, we get more into like the, again, into that analysis, into the, into thoughtful discussions about film and cinema. Yeah. So for your cinema needs, come here. Yeah. So well, in the speaking news, of news, yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the news, well, the strike continues um, between yeah. the studios and between talent. And of course, the, the main uh, contentious issues are over streaming residuals and AI and everyone's pretty well dug in and there hasn't been a lot of movement. Uh, some people say on. that talent will wind up crying in the end mm-hmm. and other people are saying, well, the studios always win. So, you know, so, so that's been going on now for, for what, two or three months. It's, it's been, been going on. around for a while and, yeah. and it's, it tends to happen. Uh, you know, these strikes, at least when I worked in Hollywood, I remember a strike then, and then there's this strike always seems like there's always fights. I mean, this is a perennial fight between those with the money and the power yeah. And within talent who, you know, actually uh, make the world go around, the ones yeah. who write the scripts and act in front of the camera. Yeah, because they, they tend to do strikes quite frequently. I mean, I shouldn't say frequently, but I, I know writers go on strike. I've seen several of these strikes over the past, you know, five years or so. It seems like they're always happening. But this yeah. one's a little bit different because, because uh, now that the pandemic has, you know, sort of resolved itself more or less. Um, and everyone has seen the impact of streaming. And oh, of yeah. course, talent wants a piece of that action. Well, and then, nobody expected streaming to take take off that much. No, no, yeah. it was unexpected, and, and and no one no one is really happy with it. You know, whether it's in music and music. I mean, as a make, consumer, I'm happy. Yeah, as a consumer, <laughs> fine. Although, although even as consumers, were you know, now that that archives are being resurrected by yeah. studios, and you know, because the studios are starving for content, mm-hmm. you know, so so there's that, and then well, there's the need to make new content. Yeah. So writers want to be paid for that, and they see the value of streaming just like the studios do. And and they're so far apart in terms that, that they've got a long ways to go. Meanwhile, the studios are trying to starve talent. 
I mean, they're even going so far as saying it publicly and, and talent like Ron Perlman himself has, you know, has had spicy words about that. So mm-hmm. each side is trying to starve the other and it's just not a, it's not a nice scene. Yeah. Not pretty. But that, that makes sense. That makes and sense. And so we, as consumers, as mm-hmm. as uh, you know, the enjoy the people who enjoy all this entertainment are going to have to pay for that fight. Ultimately, who's going to win? Well, like every other other one of these um, strikes, there's going to be a negotiated truce. We just don't know how long it's going to be. So I, I yeah. feel for all them. You know, some people are losing their houses. I mean, and not the producers, but the talent themselves are losing their losing their houses, and and homeless homelessness is mm-hmm. on the rise. And in LA and it's not just um, the regular folks being homeless. Some of them are the people in our industry too. So that's, that's a strike there. And that's, that's a pity there. Um, that's a bummer. Yeah. And AI continues to be a big issue. You know, how are we going to embrace that? You know, how is, how are the creatives going to deal with that? Whether you're working effects or whether you're an actor and you're going to have to license out your voice or license yeah. out your body. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of like, um, hand-wringing over that and yeah. we're nowhere near it's gonna near. be a big and long discussion unfortunately oh it's and gonna, it needs to be decided now really it's all happening right now you know and, and, and that's why everyone's so dug in with this mm-hmm. thing um uh, you know a year ago we weren't so worried uh we were just dealing with the pandemic yeah. and now uh, so and a lot of what, this, one of the saving graces i will say on the technology side mm-hmm. with ai is that video you know text to video where you can just create like you know the something incomparable to Star Wars uh, through text-to-video or some sort of video generation without using a really heavy or an expensive uh, effects shop, special effects shop, that's a ways off. I mean, we it still, is. I mean, there's flickering yeah. video, you know, there's all sorts of defects, well, artifacts with that sort of uh, yeah. production. So we're not quite there yet. There's still a little bit of time. What I'm noticing too is like, because I do a lot of video editing and all that fun stuff, a lot of what you see with the video is um, more like compositing. Like you're taking still photos and putting it into the video. Things of that nature. So, I mean, because like you said, you can't really do high-end stuff with this AI th- technology yet, but it's going to no. get there probably, you know, sooner than we, we think. Yeah, they, I, I saw some stuff here recently, uh, and a lot of the problems has to do with the sort of uh, uh, typical hallmarks of, of something that's AI generated, which is flickering, and, yeah. which has to do a lot with frame rates. And, and the way the images are generated themselves. And we can get into that, into that another time, about yeah. diffusion models. Well, I know but that. that's improving. Yeah. So all this technology, all this striking stuff is kind of pushing things to the outlands, right? So well, that actually affects things like a local thing that we have here around here is the Aurora Drive-In. Uh, yeah. A lot of this stuff, like the streaming, people getting tired of, you know, be, just watching everything. I know that's something that affects me is I don't necessarily want to be able to go on to Disney Plus and just watch anything that I want. This I want to have, true. I want to have things, yeah, catered or not catered. What is the right word? Um, well, uh, custom, customized. Well, or no, when, when somebody creates the list for you, when they oh program curated, yeah, curated, curated. Thank you. There you go. So when they curate it and they make these selections for me, it's always it's kind of nice. Which is your experience at that driving over there. In well, Florida, yes, right? and so during you know during the pandemic, uh, all of us probably got a little sick sometimes with the offerings on our on our streaming platform yeah. and wanted to look you know. We kind of waxed nostalgic to be out with an audience, you know, but we yes. couldn't do it because of separation, right? Social distancing. So the drive-in actually had a bit of a uh, uh, renaissance, you know, yeah. during p- the pandemic. Would and you say that lo- was true nationally or just kind this, of? The, as far as I know, is a national yeah. thing because drive-ins suddenly had, you know, you know, they had great attendance. And yeah. we were part of that. My family, we would go to the drive-in in Aurora, which is down Highway 60, just about 30 miles from here. And it was great. And mm-hmm. uh, we watched Smokey and the Bandit out of all movies. You know, it's like, you know, classic, wholesome Americana kind of film. But you got in your car, you sat there, you tuned in, you brought, you brought, you know, all the 
all the candy and popcorn you could smuggle in because nobody's <laughs> checking the trunk. It was great. And you would sit there and, um, and it was great, but, but, uh, the Aurora Drive-In has gone under new management, and unfortunately, it seems like it's suffering. Um, and it has a lot to do with the programming. Initially, yeah. the idea was to put in thirty dollars a ticket, you know, concert, uh, you know, concerts in there. You know, anyone who pays yeah. thirty dollars for a ticket to go to a music concert is probably going to a pretty big name, and you know, whether they're playing in Aurora, especially I don't know. around here in the Ozarks. So yeah, you know, people went to the drive-in in order to take the whole family because they charge by the car. Yeah, you know, if you could put 20, 20 family members in the car, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, all, and, all, and all the candy you can smuggle in. That. I got to remember that. <laughs> now it's by the person, but that's, you know, kind of like secondary to the issue of programming. Yeah. And so the programming isn't there. And, 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 and the crazy thing is that there's, there's an awful lot of like commentary from the public that bring back the classic family programming, bring yeah. back the, the family experience so we can watch a movie. So that I could take drive my in. little child too, as well as my parents yes. and not be embarrassed. Exactly. You know, you know and, and so the demand is there mm-hmm. and, and the programmers uh, are not listening yeah. and it's new management. And, and, and the pity well, is that sometimes new management will run a place into the ground. And that's, that's true. That's my fear. And there aren't many of these, now that the pandemic's over, there aren't a whole lot of these drive-ins left, no, and I hope yeah. that they survive. I really do. But whether they do is going to be going to depend whether well, the public should, supports them. We should ask our audience right now, because we had talked about one of our things at the Ozark Film Foundry, is, which supports this podcast, is that we want to build film culture around here. That's right. So we had talked about doing pop-up drive-ins That's right. around Springfield, like find a big flat building and just throw a projector up, and we have transmitters that transmit to radios and cars. And That's right. I just see what people you know that are listening think about that. So. Oh, well. You I want know, to get some comments on that. I would love to know about all the big walls, yeah. and, and, you know, with an adjacent parking lot in the town. If you yes. would send those, send those names over, we'll look into it. But the idea behind pop-ups is that, yeah, every weekend there's a, there's a movie that pops up on the wall mm-hmm. and you'll find out about it on our Facebook page or on our mailing list. If you're a member yeah. and we will let you know where that is. And you come by and you tune in your radio and yeah. you and your whole family can watch a movie uh, in some neighborhood wall. And so that's kind of fun. Sweet. And then we're going to do that. So I've already started talking to the city planners about that. Nice. So stay tuned. So the next thing, we have one, film more, festivals. one more piece of news. Yeah, yeah, film festivals here. Um, we have, so if you're thinking of submitting a film, if you've made a film and, you, and you're thinking of submitting it and want to uh, soon, um, you usually need to have some leeways. There's some head time, lead head time, time to do yeah, that. Yeah. So yeah. we just want to make you aware of a couple of film festivals coming up, uh, one of them being in Joplin. And this is the uh, Great Wonder Uplift Film Fest, which is January 11th to 13th in Joplin and Webb City. And this is a newer one, right? Like, this is a, a newer years. one. As I understand it, the, the organizers got in touch with us, and we've posted it on our Facebook mm-hmm. at uh, facebook.com slash Ozark Film Foundry. And you can find information there. But to apply and submit films, and you can submit to many film festivals this way, you would go to Film Fa- Film Freeway. Film Freeway. David, yeah. right? Then is that right? I just yeah, and I just uh, I just made my profile a couple of weeks ago and submitted one of my films to multiple uh, festivals around the world. Actually, ones in Vienna, uh, in Austria, ones over in Sundance. I couldn't resist. I was like, you know, it's and you know, it's funny because I say like I couldn't resist to submit to Sundance. It's because it's not that expensive. Like it was 70 bucks to submit to Sundance. Which wow. I was really surprised. Yeah. I thought they'd be really expensive, but that's what you'll find is that a lot of these film festivals, if you're a filmmaker, 
go out and look at a lot of these film festivals because they'll be fifty to a hundred dollars to submit to these. The Vienna one was only seventeen dollars. That's right. And if you're a filmmaker, yeah. you have to be selective about which ones you're going to yes. you know. Apply. I picked like, ones, apply, like applying to college, really. Yeah, I picked ones that were specifically for short films and that I thought that I matched well with the festival. And they'll they actually have a selection process. So like I don't know if I'm actually in these festivals yet. But yeah, Film Freeway. Go make a profile on there, and I don't know if the one in Joplin is on Film Freeway, but you they can always, are. Oh, they are good. They are. So look there, or I, I think the link that we put up there had some information. Yes, about and it has a link to Film Freeway, and so that's that's a way to get entered into the uh, a local film festival. It's for yeah. Missouri, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Kansas filmmakers. So that's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. There's also another film fest coming up in March in Columbia, which is the True False Film True False film festival which is typically for documentary i was going to say that's mainly documentary it's for documentary but it's become a major filmmaker i when i was up in columbia as a graduate student um i went to it and it was it was amazing it's a great great uh great weekend and i've only heard good things they really specialize not only showing films but in creating a sense of place a sense of magic uh uh, and that's the whole thing i mean really they they want to create experience Mm -hmm. so anyone who goes there not only is partaking in films and they can see a bunch of films over that weekend more than they probably care to see. Like you can see 20 films in a weekend if you want, but you can also hop from place to place and be in, yeah. and just be enmeshed in this, this great like civic environment. It's wonderful, yeah. which is a great way to make, you know, to create a sense of place, which I know Springfield uh, community uh, leaders are always talking about. Yep. Um, that goes beyond um, just what we, we always do. And, awesome. and we're about creating film culture. So creating more of these sort of places is a big deal. Yep. So you mentioned history here now, Sundance, which gets us back yes. to the history thing. I just want you know, <laughs> since we're talking about history, and I you just had mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast, we're going to talk about indie film stuff. Well, but. I think it's probably good to talk a little bit about history and what sure. what is indie filmmaking because you know we're 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 talking about making films as independents. Yeah. What does that mean? Independence from what? You know, yeah. from the studio system. From are we going to go all the way back to New York with the studios? You would there, almost have to. to well, and there's and always been independent filmmakers. Well, in has. the beginning, in the beginning, way back in the beginning, the genesis of film. All right, the 1896 and thereabouts. Film is always expensive to make. I mean, oh, actual yeah. film. I mean, you're taking silver, actual the the metal silver, and you're and you're shellacking it or pasting it onto like a, a you know what's called a substrate, your material, your medium. But it's silver, and silver is a, is a precious metal, you yep. know. And then so you had to have a negative and all the chemicals, and you'd make various sort of intermediary stages till you get a final print. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you're all done, it's expensive. So only people who can make films are people who are independently wealthy, and those are your original indie filmmakers and studios, the very early studios. And that's the way it yeah. was through the silent period, which is all the way up to 1927 in your first film, The Jazz Singer. And then after that, you had the development of what's called the studio system. And the studios, you know, the studios, uh, well, of course, they could afford this is what they did. They made big, luscious, beautiful films on, yeah. on, on silver, you know, uh, silver negatives. And they had and the sets and they had the they, lights the and the whole the big thing. and the crews. And, but that's yeah. the only people who could do it were the studios, you know. Yeah. So this is the emergence. You know, Charlie Chaplin created his studio, United Artists, along with a couple other actors. And you had Columbia Pictures, and you had these big studios. And the studios, of course, the reason it's called a studio system is because the star system didn't exist yet. The studios had stars, or what we call Mm -hmm. stars today. They were just actors, and they were loaned out between each other. So Humphrey Bogart would be loaned out to you know to another studio who that wanted him, and then in return you know they switch out actors. Or Marilyn Monroe was loaned huh. out, and so it's almost on. like a baseball team sort of setup. It's exactly like that. Yeah. It's exactly like that. And so the yeah. studios had all the power, and the actors didn't really have any, and they didn't get paid very well. I mean, compared to today's actors, 
But eventually that broke up where the stars started to realize, and their agents especially, uh, um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> they started to realize, wait a minute, if, I, if, if we've shot half the film on this expensive medium, you know, this, this on film, then they're not going to fire us because mm-hmm. they'd have to reshoot the whole film. So we actually have power. We have, we have leverage. And so yep. this is the birth of the, of the star system where yeah. stars could say, well, you know, now I think Peter Fonda, a- you know, or, or one of these, any of these big actors at the time yeah. or Sean Connery could come in and say, no, you know, I'm going to decide which pictures I take. I'm not going to be like bargained away like a, yeah. like a chip. And, um, and so movie, that was the star um, system. Singing in the rain kind of mm-hmm. addresses that actually well, this this was that. well i mentioned that there, there were in the very very beginning 1910s and so on there were independent filmmakers just mm-hmm. little you know wealthy people who made little films but the independent film cinema that we're talking about started in about the 1950s yeah and 60s and so you really started to see it over in france because there um well until then studio pictures looked like studio pictures they're basically on sound stages mm-hmm. and they were in locked in environments and mm-hmm. and and they moved from levels of just, you know, filming a theater play, being basically film plays, to being a little bit more naturalistic. Because Marlon Brando came out of there. He was the first real method actor, and which was naturalistic acting, which was a separation from the more, like, uh, you know, more stodgy styles of acting. All that happened yeah. still within the studio system. But then the French came along, uh, a movie called A Bout de Souffle, which is Breathless. And, and this movie, uh, it was filmed uh, on the streets, it was filmed very style. The camera was uh, handheld. It was, well, it was full of breath and full yeah. of movement. And this was the beginning of the French New Wave. Which I have to say, just from a technical standpoint, actually filming out in the street with that style, with that technology at the time, which was not really very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Had, well, the film, trying to find a way to actually shoot it properly so it looks good, in my mind, would be very impressive. Oh, those cameras are huge. They're heavy. Yeah, they're I mean, huge. The old, they're heavy. Their, their ability to handle dynamic range is terrible. So if yeah. you had a too sunny of a day or if you had too dark of a day, I mean, you must have been waiting on weather. I mean, it was just so... It was just... It was just very, um, it was just hard to do that. It was. I mean, technically, yeah, it was very, very difficult. And, and this is also another very important factor right about the same time was the development of 16-millimeter film. Oh, yeah. Because that made it smaller. Well, yes, actually... I mean, the, the cameras were smaller, so mm-hmm. the, the magazines that hold the film, mm-hmm. uh, which are specialized cans that deliver the film through the camera and then back into a take-up reel without only exposing it to light just for the instant where the yeah. image is captured, but then it's preserved until it gets to the laboratory for development. Uh, the 16-millimeter image and then what was called Super 16, um, these were much smaller uh, images yeah. and much smaller, you know, the technology was cheaper. And so this really allowed for filmmakers to get their hands on cameras. And, and this, this so it was were, cheaper, able to get it more into the hands of just anybody. Right. Kind of like we see now with cell phones, just to relate it to a modern example. Yeah, you know? it's precisely that way. And there was lots of innovations within the filmmaking. So on the, on the real consumer side, you had the development of, of the 8mm and Super 8mm home movie cameras. I was cameras. actually going to ask about the Super 8 because there was a, there it was came a out of movie the same era. recently about Super 8, the, the, all monsters and all those fun things. But they yes. used a Super 8 camera for that. Well, that on the professional filmmaking side was 16 and Super 16. And then on the home, you know, home, yeah. you know, consumer side was the eight and super eight. Okay. And the difference between them all was that the negatives are smaller and the straight 16 and eight. And the super is, is that typically film and run through the camera with sprockets on both sides mm-hmm. so that the gears would run the film through the camera without missing uh, anything. Yeah. So to make it super, they took off one side of the sprockets. Mm-hmm. So then, so you could have a bigger frame. Yeah. So, but you had to, huh. 
So that's how you made a bigger frame. Anyway, that's interesting. The point is, is that uh, yeah. so all this technology was suddenly in the hands of people who didn't work at studios, and uh, and so, so they were able to make independent movies. Well, who would you say is the biggest name in, from from that era? Then that well, from came that, out of that from that era, um, in those days, you know, well. I mean, you had Jean-Luc Godard, who was a theorist, French theorist and filmmaker who started mm-hmm. the film magazine, uh, Carrier du Cinéma. And so he was, he, his whole thing was about theorizing how can cinema be different? How can it look different, feel different? And then he went out and did it. And he was working with other European filmmakers like Boone, uh, Louise Buñuel, who was a surrealist filmmaker. And, and really, the French really drove this whole car. I mean, they were really doing that. And then in the United States, John Cassavetes, uh, he did some uh, independent films at the time. And this mm-hmm. is the 1960s. Dennis Hopper, of all people, you know, he yeah. was made Easy Rider, and that was an independent film. And so you had, and then of course you had Vietnam and everything going on. So there was a lot of like, the studios were making their like kind of, you know, big technicolor, you know, yeah. westerns, the end of the westerns, were making their big films. But it was really the indie filmmakers in the 60s and 70s. And this is where the beginning, this is where John, uh, Martin Scorsese got his start was yeah. back then. You know, these guys, they came out wow. of the indie filmmaking movement. That's what they were doing. Yeah. So let and, me ask you this. Yeah. So would you say the French were more, so you're, you, discovered, you discussed a couple different things here. Um, so There's a lot studio, of activity and layers going on, yeah. So you have the studio system in the United States. So do you think the French were more of just all independent filmmakers and outside of the studio systems? Or did, did they have their own version of the studio system? The studio system uh, was pretty much an American phenomenon. I mean, the, the different countries in Europe had their own national uh, sort yeah. of studios, but that's more of a 1930s, 40s thing, whether it's UFA film in Germany or whether it was uh, the Russian uh, state uh, filmmaking apparatus. And these were nationalized, like they were, the They're, government was funding these things. They were, yes, they were basically national, yeah. well, they, they were government funded. I don't know if they were nationalized necessarily, but, but if you were a German filmmaker like a Fritz Lang or if you're a Russian filmmaker, like we saw Alita, Queen of Mars here with the film foundry a couple yeah. of months ago, uh, those are made through film com- production companies that are, are pretty closely tied to the government and receive their funding from the government. So right. that's not really independent filmmaking. No. The independent filmmaking I'm talking about is like, you know, like uh, Jean-Luc Godard went out and found the money, you know, and he had theorized how to make this kind of cool new kind of film. And, and there was no real official way of making that within the French st- uh, system because mm-hmm. it didn't really exist. Uh, not in a sort of a... a not on the level of the studio system in Hollywood. So Hollywood made Hollywood studio movies, yeah. and that was that. And then Europe made the European cinema, which tended to be what we would call art house, but it was really just independent cinema. Yeah. And so then the Americans you... came back and did the same thing in mm-hmm. the 60s, and they did that to get away from the studio system, oh. to do it outside the studio system, mostly because budgets. You know, they, It's the only way they can do it is on their own. And I was going to ask, to clarify, so would you define independent filmmakers as people with low budget? or Because we talked about initially, you had, That's a good you question. had independent, yeah. you had independent filmmakers that were just rich, like when the film first started, which makes sense. Then it went to studio systems. But then we got to these cheaper ability to produce uh, you know, through uh, advanced in technology. So would you define then an indie filmmaker at that time period as being someone that just was just outside the studio system or they were also just like micro budgets and just producing things with really oh, that's interesting. a lot of money. Right. So initially it'd be just outside the studio system. Yeah. I mean, they still, I mean, 16 millimeter film costs a lot of money. When I was in 
film school and I developed like 400 foot roll of like 16 mil film. It cost me like hundreds of bucks, <laughs> Oh geez. which, you know, is still a lot of money. Right. And then, but how you know, many, how many seconds of film was that? Well, a 400, <laughs> 400, a 400 minute roll is only 11 minutes. Yeah. And you know, you're only going to use the 400 foot rolls, 11 minutes. Yeah. And depending okay. on your shoot ratio, if you're using, you know, you're shooting seven to one or 10 to one, which is pretty good. You're only going to have yeah. one minute of that going to the finished film. Jeez. So you're, you're wasting nine, <laughs> nine out of 10, nine tenths of it. Right. Now and we're here. Now we're hearing the cost. Yeah. So, so it's still very, expensive and so filmmakers are really kind of you know went to extraordinary lengths to get their hands on equipment and then to pay for the film yeah to get the hands on to get their hands on the equipment sometimes like we're going to talk about Werner Herzog here in the September screening we're going to show a documentary about his making of, the, of his movie Fitzcarraldo he just went out and stole the borrowed stole <laughs> he says he stole but you know sometimes the story is he borrowed but he felt filmmakers should just take what they needed to make their film so he's kind of a gorilla filmmaker there you and, go and so he did which he, is another genre of, of independent, of independent filmmakers, yeah, filmmakers so yeah. he he so you know but he so desperately wanted to make films that you know that's what he that's what he did uh um and then he made a Geary the wrath of god and then you know now he's a legend um uh, you know filmmakers have used like short ends which are like the remnants of reels you know yeah. and then stitch those together you know like oh, we got these 30 terrible. feet well i mean <laughs> There, you know, you couldn't do thirty takes, and, and you had to like nail it, right? Well, and it's funny though too because I and say the that, film I say, stock would vary, so when you process it, it wouldn't all look the same. Oh my goodness! Oh yeah. Well, and people, you know, I say that sounds terrible, but you know, at the time, that's how you edited. Like nowadays, yes. we just we have this digital, nice digital slider where you can cut out segments of this file. But in the, that point in time, you actually had to cut the physical film that's and right. stitch it back together. So, you know, it, it was just all part of the process. Of that it was. It, yeah. I mean, you were handling a physical medium. Yeah. Uh, going back again to this this film school experience I had is like, you know, holding the film and putting it through a, you know, through yeah. a viewer and cutting and splicing it with a tape and everything. It was just fantastic. And we didn't... And, that was black and white. It didn't even get into color yeah. grading, which so is matching the color. So these are indie filmmakers in the fifties and sixties. Fifties and sixties. Yeah. So now we're in the seventies. So in the seventies, that's that's the majority. The studio system had collapsed. The star system was rising, mm -hmm. and in the nineteen uh, you know nineteen seventies, we have Star Wars. We have Star Wars and Jaws, and then we have then we have you know. Um, and those are all star based. They're not. Was, it was, like but this is the beginning of the blockbuster, which leads to the beginning of what what we what we have today, which is you know the big hundred million dollar tentpole movies and Marvel movies. Okay. So so you have that one track. That's the new studio system, which is very star based because a green you know a star attached to one of those films. I mean, they won't make one of those films without a star. Yeah. I mean, they won't. But what that does, it sets up for the 90s yeah. and, and the next generation of indie filmmakers, which is, of course, you know, Tarantino. So you have Tarantino, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. You also have Robert Rodriguez with Mariachi. And this is where mm -hmm. you get to the, the low-budget indie filmmaker. So yeah. Rodriguez comes in with a $7,000 film called El Mariachi. And and it blew everyone away. You know, he edited it on two VCRs to get oh, his geez. like rough cut. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so and and this is also just the beginning of digital digital filmmaking. So now we're full on blown. You know, the only people who do really uh, shoot on film are like the big big yeah. you know studios. So, so now me, we're about up to the present, more or less. Yeah. So let me clarify. Let me yeah. ask some clarifying questions here. Then. Uh, so what you're saying then is about this time period, 80s, 90s. Um, Studios systems no longer really there, but you do have some big studios that still produce, you know, a lot of works. Yeah. But the idea of a main feature video, a, a tent pull and all this stuff, is that you have a large actor attached to it and a large budget. Whereas an independent film is more of something that has a low budget, maybe has people that are, you know, B level actors or lower, lower. 
and they produce in areas that aren't necessarily like in LA or in Hollywood or in New York where they actually have a system set up for like sound stages and that's right other things of that nature like so Atlanta for example would probably be considered in the system because they have Marvel and they have all this system set up well now we're now you're talking about where are we at in the 2020s yeah where we're like splintering right. out into like so other I may be, I may be a little far ahead then well Robert Rodriguez because I just talked about him you know he was out of um, He's out of Austin, out of Texas. And yeah. then after he finished up Spy Kids, uh, uh, What's Upon a Time in Mexico with Johnny Depp, uh, he went and developed his own studio, hmm. in, Troublemaker Studios in Austin. Yeah. You know, and then uh, Danny Glover, is that or did I have it right? Uh, Danny Glover is an actor, yes. Yeah, but he's also uh, behind, isn't he? Well, I shouldn't talk about what I'm not 100% certain. We'll have, to, we'll have to verify the we'll facts. We'll have to so. verify the facts. <laughs> but um, anyway, the guy behind uh, Atlanta, uh, behind uh, basically the Atlanta film scene and TV mm-hmm. scene, right? Um, and I'm sure people can comment on this. Uh, but anyway, uh, they had a they had a film tax incentive there to bring did. companies yeah. in. But Atlanta has been uh, developing into another center of filmmaking. New Orleans yes. for a while. Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, out of New Orleans. Yeah. Vancouver is a big one in, yeah, up in Canada. Exactly huge. And so, so you have had some splintering. Peter Jackson also, after Lord of the Rings, he wound up setting a special effects shop in New Zealand, his mm-hmm. home. So, mm-hmm. so individual artists can um, can have a huge impact in developing locally. We have some individual artists here from Springfield yeah. who are major names in the industry, and you know, yeah. it, we have yet to see what their long term impact will be in developing our our local okay. industry. We may have to talk to them. So let me ask you this question then. Yeah. So we've kind of gotten to this point where in the 2020s, you know, we still have we st- we have areas set up where you do main productions. Then anything outside those areas is considered more indie because you don't have the support structure of the sound those stages are the and outlands. the actors yeah. and the people. So what would you consider an indie filmmaker nowadays? Well, an indie filmmaker nowadays would still be operating outside the studio system. Probably would not be involved with a franchise, making a franchise film that has to be, you know, uh, tested with audiences yeah. and so on. Would not have to deal with, like, you know, million, multi-million dollar budgets, marketing budgets. Uh, they're probably working in digital. They're probably doing something, uh, some sort of unconventional storytelling, which is yeah. not really the, the the domain of the studios. Um, they're probably using, um, you know. A consumer level technology or maybe i mean some of the more sophisticated uh indie filmmakers may be using more you know higher end technology but it's going to tend to be prosumer or it's not going to be a, a 35 millimeter panaflex system you know it's not a million dollar there are camera. people going back to that you know yeah yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> they like they like to go retro and maybe they get things. on their red camera you know and their really <laughs> fancy lenses but uh but you, you know you don't really need all of that to make a film you no, really you don't. don't um a lot of great films, like Jim Jarmusch, you know, uh, is one of these indie filmmakers. He owns his own negative. He operates completely outside the system. He made Dead Man with Johnny Depp. He's a very interesting character. Yeah. You know, I mean, the world of independent cinema has a lot of interesting characters, like John Waters. I mean, these guys, you know, they don't really, they would have never been able to make it in the studio system. No. But they've made yeah. huge contributions to world cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, because of their, they maintain their independence. And then some filmmakers have gone and gone over to make studio films. And decided they didn't like it and got out. Okay, you know, so makes sense. So right now, they, they I mean, both they, have their advantages and disadvantages. They do. I course. mean, you know, for those who 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 want to get into the hundred million dollar film business and you know have a studio breathing over them, you know, every <laughs> single second, you know, could get, <laughs> knock yourself out. That sounds like a nightmare to most artists. Right, I think. right. I mean, but you know, you may get to do the next, you know, Wonder Woman. Yeah. You know, or Marvel, Marvel picture. Well, but for everyone else as a filmmaker, you know, uh, embrace the freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, embrace. 
uh, embrace that democracy, you know, that, uh, that any kid now, you know, can, I think Francis Ford Coppola once said it in one of his films, I think it was a documentary about his making of Apocalypse Now. There's some kid in Ohio or some kid out there somewhere who's going to get their hands on the camera and this technology and is going to make a film that's going to blow us all away. I mean, yeah. I mean, you see it every day, honestly, with YouTube and all these people that make these short little clips. I mean, it's amazing. So we just need to see that talent develop into like the actual full feature films and see where it, where it goes. Yeah. Well, there's, there's always uh, there's always new, I mean, new visions on the horizon. Yeah. And speaking of that, we have to head off to we do, our own I, new horizon. <laughs> I do want to say, and I feel like I've I said this the last segment too. Um, I'd love to sit and break break this down even more. Well, we will <laughs> a film history series. If well, if we you will. will. I mean, yeah. that's that's the purpose of that's the purpose of Outland filmmakers. We're going to do filmmaker interviews. Yeah, and we're going to talk about more of this history and get more into the details because I really think that the more you know about this the better filmmaker you become. Oh, exactly. Yeah, because you yeah. know what people have done successfully and unsuccessfully, how to challenge new things. What they've done, it, and then you can kind of sense, not not that any, we're supposed to bend with the wind necessarily or follow trends. You know, we we want to, as artists, as filmmakers, we want to lead the trend. Yeah. Filmmakers are, are creating the zeitgeist. We're creating the culture, yeah. you know, that the rest of the country enjoys and the way they see the world. And yeah. so we do that, we're able to do that better if we're more aware, more... Of the past, yeah. Of the past. And it's interesting because people, I mean... Our lifespans are, you know, 70, 80 years. So we don't realize, we think film's been around for forever, but it's only been about 100 some odd years, 120 years. Yeah. So, you know, there's we need to look back and be inspired by the past and still make new things for the future. But, you know, it's always good to know what's happened so we can be inspired for future, That's right. future and, and, artistic and endeavors. We are on the precipice right now of like some incredible stuff, you know, mm -hmm. going again to the AI thing before we finish and wrap up here yeah. today. Um, you know, it's not good enough to make video, but it's really great for conceptual work. And I've seen some amazing concepts that if they were ever made into films, yeah, I would go. I I'd take my, it. I'd be there. I'd take my, you know, take yeah. my money. I want to, you know, the Vatican Space Force. Which, <laughs> I, I think love that's that. what it's No, Vatican <laughs> Space Agency. Well, uh, it's just this guy. I mean, he's got an Instagram account, and it's just, it's just, uh, you know, the Vatican has moved into deep space and is yeah. and is you know colonized the galaxy, and it's got the you know space popes and anti popes, yeah. and it's like. You know, if this thing were, like, real, I mean, that would be well, wild. Well, talking about, to continue with the theme of the, this episode, uh, independent filmmakers, you know, in 10 years, they're going to have all these tools, and it's going to yes. be pretty crazy what they make. And so I understand the fear of actors and talent. I do. Um, and But we've always gotten through this, uh, and, and, and they will eventually adjust. But I think the world is better off when we can see more. Sure. We can have new visions. So, you know, ultimately that's where the balance is going to fall, I believe. This is, we're, we're going to wrap up now. We hope you visit with us again and we hope you've enjoyed this. So this is David. Say hi and bye. Hi, bye. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, this is John Farmer, Dilatory. And this is, this is the Ozarks Film Foundry. And we hope, we hope you'll visit with us again on the next Outland Filmmakers podcast. And until then, please keep forging the film frontier. <laughs>